produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. I am thinking today of a little town called Gatun. If you happen to live there during the 1930s and 40s, you know it is a place where there was no strangers, no rich, no poor, but just friends and caring neighbors. We all went to one commissary, one doctor at one dispensary, and all our children went to one school. For centuries, it had lain quietly between two oceans beneath the tropical sun almost unknown to the world. But when the Panama Canal, that marvel of the century, was completed and the ships of the world came almost to its door, Gatun woke up and became a place of importance. In our previous episode, I told you the story of how a dam was built along the Panama Canal by the town of Gatun. It was a story of international superpowers, political proxy wars, and ultimately, good engineering. Like a fairy tale, our story ended with a wonderful, stable dam that remains as good today as it had been a century ago. It was truly a testament to human engineering and how dams can bring great value to our lives. It's remarkable, actually, that the Gatun Dam having been built with now-dated technologies under such political duress, has survived so successfully as it has. Later in this episode, we'll be hearing more about Gatun and how real people feel the benefits of this engineering project gone right. But what about when things go wrong? I mean terribly, horribly wrong. Dams, like any other architectural monument, are liable to fail. Not often, but occasionally. The difference is that when a large statue falls or a bridge collapses, the only people in danger are those in its direct vicinity. When a dam breaks, the disaster that ensues is measured in square miles, affecting whole towns and cities, endangering whole swaths of earth and large populations of people who otherwise didn't know they were even near a danger site. Take, for instance, the small rural town of Longarone, in Northeast Italy. If you'd visited in 1963, you could have walked through the streets lined with sun-drenched houses, perfectly aligned trees and green pastures which seemed to form stairways up the sides of steep hillsides. Even thinking about the place feels warm. On October 9th, 
1963, 260 million cubic meters of forest, earth and rock fell into the reservoir of the Vion Dam, creating a wave of unimaginable proportion, a mega-tsunami. To some estimates, over 50 million cubic meters of water in size. The dam didn't even break, but it was far outmatched and failed to hold back the unfolding disaster. It's as if the water was jumping out of the reservoir. On October 10th, 1963, you wouldn't have found sun-drenched homes and rolling hills in Longarone. The entire town was flattened like a sandcastle on the beach during high tide. A whole third of the town's population, around 2,000 people, died. Failures such as Vions don't occur often in the world, but they're hardly unheard of. Ever since the year 575, when a dam failure in Yemen caused a mass migration of some 50,000 people, humans have had to grapple with doomsday scenarios related to our hydro infrastructure. As recently as March of 2018, a long run of heavy rain caused the failure of the Patel Dam in Solai, Kenya, causing 47 casualties. 2012 alone saw four dam failures worldwide, two of which were deadly. In 2010, seven failures, four fatal. Still, in the last four years, only five dam failures have occurred, with only two having caused any casualties. Looking at the numbers alone, you'll notice some patterns. There are more dam failures in recent years than in the past. Understandable, because we've got a lot more dams now than ever before in history, or at least we're keeping better track of them. At the same time, these incidents are becoming less dangerous, causing fewer deaths as safety regulations have improved. One of the more recent and extremely devastating instances of such an event occurred in late 2015. In March of 2018, during the 8th World Water Forum in Brasilia, I sat down for a conversation with Roberto Vac. The Renova Foundation, for which Vac is CEO, is a company founded in the wake of this tragedy. The setting of the event, Mariana, Brazil. This wasn't a conventional water dam, though. No drinking water, no hydropower function. Rather, the Mariana was an earthen dam built for mining purposes. Stored behind the dam were what's called tailings, residue, waste without value, built up from mining operations. The tailings contained small pieces of metal, water, and often chemicals. You wouldn't want to be around when a regular dam bursts, but you especially don't want to be around for a dam burst like this one. It's why the Mariana Dam disaster is now considered the worst environmental catastrophe to have ever occurred in Brazilian history. Now, 
November 5th, 2015, 3.30 p.m., a small leak is discovered in the Mariana Dam. A team arrives at the scene trying to mitigate the problem and begins draining part of the dam's storage pool. It is not enough. 50 minutes later, at 4.20 p.m., the leak turns into a full-scale break in the structure. The scale of the fallout is remarkable. The town of Bento Rodriguez, bordering the dam site, is leveled under meters worth of mud and other garbage. 60 million cubic meters of waste flows out of the dam through the town and into the Dose River. Nearly 57 billion liters of liquid sludge levels an entire town, like a volcano eruption. 17 people are dead, 16 are injured, hundreds displaced from their homes. Flora and fauna through a stretch of the Dose River of roughly 700 kilometers from Bento Rodriguez to the Atlantic Ocean are hit, and the outcome is unimaginable. Total annihilation of local fish populations, contamination of water supply for millions of people along the southeast Brazilian coast. The lives of hundreds, if not thousands of individuals changed that afternoon. At that stage, nothing we could do because the only thing that uh, could be done was to deal with the emergency. And uh, we must uh, say that the company did everything really to address the situation. Uh, they mobilized all the people and a lot of effort, the different efforts on that. But the chaotic situation was above uh, everything that um, they could imagine, the whole society could imagine. So we are talking about... Uh, potential of about uh, 50,000 people that um, considered themselves as impacted. In the wake of the event, concerned third parties were quick to point fingers. There was no evacuation plan for the town of Bento Rodriguez in the scenario of a dam break. The only means in and out of the town was through dirt roads, which ultimately meant fire trucks couldn't get through and evacuations had to be achieved exclusively via helicopter. Overall, it seemed that too few people had given much thought to such a doomsday scenario. Hindsight is 2020, but the safety of a rural village near an industrial site isn't necessarily the first thought of government or corporate officials, especially when a dam break seems such an unthinkable scenario. How quickly did you realize how bad the situation is. It took, uh, I think, one day or even more, two days. So the first time you read the, or hear about the news, you don't go like, oh my God, that's the end of the world. You just say, let's deal with it. That's kind of... No, I think the, the, the dimension of uh, the damage was something not uh, easy to understand, you know, 
the information was not there, so there was a lot of, uh, of confusion in the press. So it's like a, an environmental disaster. It takes take a while for you to understand what's going on, the dimension, like uh, volcanoes and any other disaster of this, this type. But it would be wrong to assume that the damage was limited to those living in Bento Rodriguez. Remember in our previous episode, I told you a dam is not just a dam? Dams affect their near vicinity, but also far-off villages and cities, regulating floods, but also providing water and power across vast stretches of earth. The flip side to that, naturally, is that the consequences of a dam's failure have equally far-reaching consequence. The Mariana Dam sat at one end of the Dosa River, and at its other end is the Atlantic Ocean. What that means is any activity near the Mariana site would eventually flow outward through towns and cities and eventually to the ocean. Normally, that's just the natural order of things. But what happens when it's not water flowing, but millions of cubic meters of sludge, chemicals and metal scraps? I think you know what happens. It's why none of us want to live downstream from nuclear power plants or sewage treatment plants. It took 17 days for the Mariana tailings to make their way to the ocean, during which time hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people living in the surrounding areas, saw their clean water supplies tainted, unusable. If it's difficult to comprehend just how wide of a problem this became, think about it like this. If you were looking out for it at the time, you could have seen the Mariana disaster effects from low Earth orbit. How much does this incident cost? <laughs> well, Renova Foundation has a budget of about 3.5 billion dollars. 3.5 billion US dollars? dollars to be spent on, uh, and this is a floor, uh, to be spent on uh, reparation and compensation. So it's huge, it's huge. And that is uh, also, you have uh, the, the damages on reputation and the damage on uh, value in stock markets and all that. So it's, it's big. We are talking about tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. In the time since that November day in 2015, analysis have been conducted, fingers pointed and litigation incited. Usually, a story like this ends up with corporate suits being dragged into court and having to answer for their crimes. In this case, the matter wasn't so black and white. It was a surprise because the company was, is a company very well known. It was a company that got all the prices on best practices, on environmental management and everything. So it was, let's say, a surprise for everybody. Big surprise. There is still no definitive answer about what caused the leak, or whether it was a case of clear oversight on any specific person or person's part. Here's what is known. 
The Mariana Dam was owned and operated by San Marco Mineração, a joint venture of two mining companies, Vale and BHP. In 2013, San Marco requested the Brazilian government to allow them to build this particular dam higher in order to increase its capacity. An environmental report released at the time cited concerned with the size upgrade, recommending regular monitoring of the structure and a game plan for the scenario of a breakage. Still, from a legal perspective, the companies had received all their proper licenses to operate. Different coalitions had differing views regarding the safety of the Mariana Dam in the years leading up to 2015. One government group characterized it as having great potential for environmental damage. Another government organization characterized the same dam as safe, though noted they were coming from an environmental and not an engineering point of view. If these conflicting accounts seem shady enough, considered that the state of Minas Gerais, where the dam and Bento Rodriguez are located, had already seen four other dam breaks in the decade leading up to the Mariana disaster. Joaquim Pimenta de Avila was one of Brazil's foremost engineers in tailing dams when he was contracted to help build the dam at Mariana in 2008. In September of 2014, he produced a report detailing severe structural cracks in the dam and recommended that the company build a buttress to reinforce the structure. Samarco claims to have not been properly warned about the issues with its dam. The company commissioned its own safety report months after De Avila's report, using a third-party company who ultimately deemed the Mariana Dam safe for operation. Eerily, that document was released only four months before the dam proved its analysis incorrect. And the trail stops here. Homicide charges were filed against 21 high-up executives of Samarco's companies in October of 2016, which have yet to amount to anything. Part of the problem with a story like this, inevitably, is the secrecy with which large multinational companies hold on to their most sensitive resources. Samarco has to claim that they followed all safety precautions necessary, but it's hard to tell from the outside whether or not that's true. It almost doesn't matter now, on some level, since regardless of how this plays out in court, the region will take years to heal and many won't ever see their homes again. Incidentally, Vale is also the recipient of the Worst Company Award from Public Eye, an organization of NGOs which seeks to recognize companies of, quote, purely profit-oriented globalization and little or no moral and social responsibility. That award, so to speak, was given to Vale in 2012, long before anyone knew what was to come.
what often gets lost in discussion of statistics, government oversight, and corporate mismanagement are the stories of what happens on the ground. Inevitably, small-scale perspectives are lost to large-scale tragedies. When I tell you Bento Rodriguez was leveled by toxic sludge, this isn't just a thing happening to a place. It's people losing everything they have, including family members and friends. I can't tell you the stories of every person whose life was demolished along with that village in November of 2015. Instead, in an attempt to understand how this sort of event feels on the ground, I spoke to someone who knows better than I do. Olga Reyes is Vice President for Public Affairs and Communication for the Coca-Cola Company in Latin America. She works with NGOs to give back to communities in need, and water is high on their agenda. We met a community, rural community, in one of the countries, and it was my boss and I. They had been trying to build like a dam, and they were not successful. So we came in and we helped them, and we became very personally involved with them. Every time I go to a community, I get a lot more out of that community. So they built the damp with the money we, we gave them. Not a lot of money, but it made a difference to them. Then Huracan Mitch came and it destroyed everything. It was the only time I saw my boss crying. He couldn't, he was like, I cannot believe, I cannot believe. Not because the money lost. No, it was because the dream was lost. They were They were trying so hard, so hard to get that because it's about farming, education, sanitation, everything. I mean, I can give you the statistics here. 10%, 50%. Who cares? It's about the boy who can go to school and doesn't have to stay at home sick. It's about the mother who can cook. It's about the farmer who can farm. It's about that. For me, seeing that in my boss, I said... It is as personal to him as it is to me. Traveling back in time. If you were there in the early years, you might have lived in one of those large four-family up-and-down frame houses in the screened-in front porches. They stood about a yard back from the narrow sidewalk, and there were long rows of them, all just alike. We lived in these houses rent-free for many years. And later, when the rent was charged for all the houses, these old four-family ones rented for $10 a month. Perhaps there were little inconveniences here and there. We were all in it together. And wasn't it really fun? For many years, Sunday school and church were held in the old lodge hall. We were happy when it was torn down and our new church was built, even though part of the time we had no pastor. We found ways to earn some money to help pay for building the church. Remember how we cooked the tough Argentine beef until halfway tender and served the good meals to the public once a month? Or how we had to stand down near the locks and sold soft drinks to the tourists who got off the ships for a brief look around? In working together, we grew closer together and made lifelong friendships. The passages you've been hearing throughout this episode come from Remembering the Tune, a short memoir written by Esther R. Fisher in 1988 for the Canal Record. Mrs. Fisher became a resident of Gatun five years after the Americans finished the Panama Canal, and her recollections of those early days 
provide an intimate look at how much the town changed in just the few decades before she arrived. So, let us return to Gatun for a while. Here, if you will, is an alternative view of everything I revealed to you in the previous episode. I told you at the beginning of this two-part episode that a dam is not just a dam. What I meant by that is exactly the sort of thing Esther Fisher, whether realizing it herself or not, was talking about when she wrote of her home. The Americans constructed the dam at Gatun in order to facilitate their politically charged, economy-boosting canal and likely had little thought for the native people just as the French before them. Perhaps in listening to these episodes so far, you've heard too little about the actual people affected most by this whole damn thing. Pun intended. Mrs. Fisher spoke of the commissary that provided her food and goods, the church that functioned as a social hub for the community, and the rows of homes built all to a single design. I wonder if she grasped the extent to which all of this was sprung out of nowhere as the result of the billing of the dam. That the town of Gatun she knew and loved would have been entirely unrecognizable only one, maybe two decades, before her arrival. There is a segment from that same Canal Record newspaper that was published 77 years before Esther Fisher's letter that I believe illuminates my point. In 1911, during production of the dam, a reporter for the paper wrote up an article about the areas that had to be cleared to make space for the Gatun Lake. The villages between Gatun and Matachin will be covered by the water of Gatun Lake. They have never been important in the sense of size or as the center of any peculiar type of life. In fact, they are little more than jungle hamlets, yet they have a distinct place in American history because they were known to European civilization many years before Jamestown was settled or Massachusetts Bay was an English colony. The native hamlets and American canal settlements are being moved, the houses torn down to be erected again elsewhere, or, in the case of shacks, merely abandoned in the jungle. The old village of Gatun, which lay on the river flats below the present town, was abandoned in 1908, and the site is now covered by 80 feet of frock and earth under Gatun Dam. At the time it was abandoned, the village contained a church, priest's house, school, a dozen small shops, and 90 or more small houses of all descriptions, from the bamboo hut with palm thatch to the typical sheet-iron-roofed shanty. Most of the buildings were moved to the new town site, now known as New Gatun. I find remarkable the passage of time implicit in these words, the movings and shiftings of people, places, things, a jungle hamlet discovered by the settlers centuries ago, now being put under water, a once thriving village, abandoned, buried under 25 meters of rock. There's one line in particular, though, which really sticks out for me in the piece. 
It is squeezed in between rather technical descriptions of the surrounding geography of the area, the dam construction, and the progress being made in digging. The writer dedicates just two sentences for consideration of a man who, in a matter of months, will see his lifetime home become engulfed by Lake Gatun. It is difficult to persuade some of the inhabitants that the inundation will ever take place, the reporter notes. One old settler, after receiving repeated warning heedlessly, ventured it as his opinion that the Lord had promised never again to flood the earth. We think of the many advantages that life offered. We could go down to the locks and see the ships of the world go by. We could step across the street from Cristobal and Balboa and be in a foreign country, Panama. Walk down the narrow streets with its stores built just off the sidewalk with the front side standing open. If interested in history, you could ride out to old Panama, once a happy little town by the ocean with its stone tower and other stone buildings lying in ruins, destroyed years ago by Sir Henry Morgan and his pirates seeking gold. It is easy to forget how great our power is to shape the environments we live in. Dams are wonderful things. Providing renewable hydropower to towns and cities and offering a swath of other benefits for those in its vicinity. They are also quite massive eyesores, taxing to native fish species, expensive to build and hold the potential for serious danger if not properly cared for. Often what's lost in the sorts of political debates that surrounded the Gatun Dam is that restructuring the very land we live on can have far-reaching consequences, both devastating and wonderful. So now that it's been a hundred years, what can we say of the Gatun Dam? That it is a sturdy, functioning, reliable structure. That it created a huge body of water which, natural as it may appear today, exists only as a result of humans reshaping the very earth below our feet to our own particular liking. That that artificial lake caused the displacement of villages, rehousing people who had no desire to move but also didn't have the power to fight back. That the area became home to many more new residents, French immigrant workers in the late 1880s who lived under horrible conditions, Then American workers in the early 1900s, working under much better conditions and earning good wages. Esther Fisher and people like her built thriving neighborhoods in a Gatun that couldn't have existed as such before the economic boom the canal brought with it. The Gatun Lake is 425 square kilometers in area. It is hard to estimate to what extent this could have affected local animal species. And yet, the lake is now a protective home to all kinds of animal and plant species who live naturally and mostly undisturbed. The area has become a hub for tropical biological science and ecotourism. Such is the paradox of this strange area of the world. So much upheaval, and yet, with each new iteration, it somehow becomes an even more beautiful place. Take one instance in 1967 when, supposedly by some accident, a local businessman introduced a fish population of peacock bass 
to the Gatun Lake. You'd think after all these years that Gatun must be cursed by the unceasing pressure of mankind to make the earth its plaything. But wait, today the peacock bass is one of the most flourishing species in the environment, and angler fishing is now a common activity for lake visitors. I hope you take all of these stories with you, of the Gatun Dam, the Mariana Dam, and the dam that was built by the team funded by Olga Reyes from Coca-Cola, when you think about what dams mean. You know by now that these are not simply technical structures. A dam is the source of great disaster when unkempt and great prosperity when properly handled. It provides valuable resource to huge numbers of people, but requires great cost all the same. Really, what I mean is, here, say it with me, a dam is not just a dam. But that's damn near enough for now. I leave you here with some final words from Esther Fisher. Yes, Gatun, you were through it all, past, present, and into the future. As for our home away from home, we will always cherish the memory of the years spent there. Sometimes in our dreams, we seem to walk again along these quiet streets at night, in the glorious moonlight, and feel once more the soft touch of your balmy, caressing breezes forever blowing. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production. Produced by PI Media.